you can take your Bibles and you can open up to the book of Esther. And as you're getting there, I just wanted to just take a minute and introduce myself if I've never met you before. Uh, my name is John. I serve here as one of the, the deacons and it is um, a joy. I'm very grateful to be able to open up the Word of God with you this afternoon. And if you've been tracking with us over the last number of weeks, you'll know that we've landed at chapter 4 of the book of Esther. And I want to begin our, our time together just by asking a question. And it's a very delicate question, so I ask this with a great deal of sensitivity. And the question is, how would you choose to live if you were told that there were a prescribed number of days before your death? Maybe you've been asked that question before or have heard other people answer it. But not only that, but if the reason for your death was not because of anything wrong you did or because of some kind of illness or sickness, but because of an evil plot by evil men, what would characterize you in the days leading up to your death? It's very sobering to think about. But the reason why we need to consider this question today is because this is the reality of the people of God in Esther chapter 4. A wicked man named Haman, the, the head of the officials in the empire, who we have to really see as an agent of Satan, has convinced the king to destroy all the Jews, every single one. All because Mordecai, Queen Esther's cousin, refused to give homage to him. He refused to associate and align himself with those who oppose God's law. And in chapter 3 and, and verse 13, you can see there that it gives the details of the edict. It says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. They knew what they were going to do, to whom they will do it, and exactly when it was going to happen. And as they watched this entire city of Susa unfold into complete ruin and confusion, they actually have it in themselves to sit back, share a drink together, and pretend as if victory has already been won. It's the epitome of a callous and conceited and, and corrupted heart. It's the arrogance of men on full display. The prophet Isaiah says of such people, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It's very disturbing to think that anything like this would ever happen. And even as we try and process this, we, we may be tempted to think that this is just a problem in the past. As if this is so far removed from anything that we experience today. But the reality is, is the same devil the same enemy who is out to destroy and annihilate God's people in Esther is the same one who prowls around today and wants nothing to do with us but to inflict evil upon God's people, upon you and me. And we should all feel what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, the fiery darts of the enemy. The fiery darts of the enemy. And we feel it within the church as he tries to sow division and disunity. We feel it in our homes as conflict arises within marriages and the fracture of, of all kinds of relationships that we experience today. It's, it's an attack on, from the enemy upon us. 
or the resistance that we experience when, when we seek to, to raise children who honor the Lord. We see it in our homes. We feel, we feel it in our workplaces and communities as there's a growing hatred towards the gospel and anything that aligns with living a holy life. The attacks of the enemy are all around us. And yet even with all that he tries to plot against us, there is some incredible faith-filled hope and encouragement from this chapter as we learn to live as God wants us to in a world that is ravaged with ruin and wickedness. So for this afternoon, this text shows us two ways that we need to live when we feel the attack of the enemy. And the first one is this. We need to live consciously knowing that God is there. We need to live consciously knowing that God is there. And I want to read the first three verses of chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The author draws our attention to Mordecai, and he, along with Esther, become the central figures and characters in this chapter. He's just become aware that there is a plot against all the Jewish people, and you need to know that he is fully aware that it's because of his one obedient act that the lives of all the Jewish people are being threatened right now. He knows that. And I would imagine that some of us in the moment would be tempted to just walk back those steps and and capitulate and, and just give in to the pressure just for the sake of the lives of the other people, the entire nation. But there is nothing here to indicate that he doubted his decision. In fact, everything that follows points to this unwavering resolve in the choice that he made. So how does he respond to the news? Well, verse 1 tells us he, he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He goes out into the middle of the street and begins to cry out in loud and bitter cries. These are, these are visible signs of, of desperation and dependence which would have been typically associated with appealing to the Lord. It's it's an experience of grief, great distress. And later on in this chapter, it mentions that he'd been fasting, and the implication is you don't fast without what? Without praying. So in absolute utter weakness, he falls before his face and cries out to the God who hears his prayer. I mean, the poor man is in complete disarray. He's got no one around him to deliver him. But get this, he knows that God is there. He is aware and conscious of the very presence of God in his life. And I think there's a particular nearness that is experienced by God's children when there is great distress. And I see this with my own kids. And maybe you see this with, with younger ones as well, that when there's, there's pain and there's trouble and there's tears, there's, there's a natural instinct to want to fall into the arms of someone they love, particularly their mother, mother or father. Parents are able to sympathize with their children in a way that no one else can. Hebrews 4, verse 16 
says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not just a place of comfort, it's a place of healing. This is a time of need and we're also reminded right there in Hebrews 4 that we do not have a high priest As it's seen on the screen here, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We worship a God who knows and cares and who is meticulously present in every detail of our lives. So that when we are being squeezed in ways that we feel unbearable, it is really God's gift of prayer to us in in order to bear the burdens that we face. And I think Mordecai is modeling for us what we can call spontaneous prayer. Spontaneous prayer. Unplanned moments in our life that demand our prayer because of the unexpected circumstances that arise. And we need that in our life, don't we? You know, when someone arrives home and they feel the weight of the day and and you look to them and you say, I don't have a lot to offer you, but I know who does. And you plead with God on their behalf right there in the moment. I know very often I, I resort to practical solutions and, and I look for answers, maybe even along with prayer, but I think there are times in our life where the only solution, even for the moment, is just prayer. Just prayer. I remember it was early on when we landed at church that I was standing in the hallway at, at D.A. Wilson and I was standing with uh, Pastor Brian and I can share that story because he's not here and he can't. <laughs> He can't stop me, but I, I was on my way somewhere, and he said, let me just pray for you, and, um, and I didn't wait around for him to pray. I just thanked him for being willing to do that and kind of just took off down the hallway, and I was, as I was walking away, I, I dropped a, a pen, and as I reached back to pick it up, I happened to look up, and I saw him just standing there by himself just praying for me. And I start, stared at him for maybe a couple seconds and thought twice, maybe should I go back? And, but then I just continued down the hallway. <laughs> um, but I was just never really used to that. You know, someone saying that they were going to pray for me and then just doing so right then and there. You know, when you first come to this church and, and you look at pockets of people who are praying and you think, oh, maybe something unique is happening there. But no, this is normal. Get used to this. This is what happens in the life of this church. To see someone with their arms around someone else just praying for them. And I just want to commend you and just say, let's continue in this and let's excel even more. That when you see your brothers and sisters who are burdened, that you help bear those burdens through prayer. You plead with God on their behalf. But I also just want to say that we can't expect to spontaneously pray if we're not also having scheduled prayer time. Scheduled prayer time. In Luke 22, it says of Jesus that it was his custom, his custom that he would go to the Mount of Olives and when he would go to the place, he told his disciples, pray. Jesus not only secured a special place where he would pray, but we get the sense that there was a fixed time each day when he would call upon his Father and commune with him. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it needs to be good enough for us. It needs to be. So let me ask you, when is your time to be alone with the Lord? 
And aside from that, when is your scheduled prayer time with your family, with your children, with your spouse? And as you appeal to God on their behalf, expressing worship and gratitude and confessing sin and making our requests known to him. Or how about when a a church-wide prayer and praise night is scheduled in, are you making it a priority to be right here with the body of Christ? Because what makes us think that we, like Mordecai, would spontaneously pray to God if we haven't established a posture and pattern of disciplined and scheduled prayer time in our own lives. We won't default to prayer if we haven't experienced daily and weekly discipline in prayer on our own, in our homes, and with one another. It was one preacher who said prayer must not be our chance work, but our daily business, our daily habit, and daily vocation. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that if we will stand against the schemes of the devil, if we're going to stand against the fiery darts of the devil, we need to be praying at all times in the spirit. It's a daily battle and we can't win apart from getting on our knees and like Mordecai, appealing to God right there in the moment. So Mordecai takes his place just outside the king's gate because According to Nehemiah 2, you never want to have a sad disposition in front of the king because he could just take your life. But notice that Mordecai's conduct seems to be infectious because in verse 3, it says that in every province there was great mourning and fasting and weeping and lamenting. He became a leader among his people. But I want us to notice something else that is mentioned here, and it was also said of Mordecai in verse 1, that they lay in or put on sackcloth and ashes. Not only were they completely dependent on the Lord in prayer, but it appears that there was also a posture of penitence, of an inward and outward turning away from evil. And I think this is implied because in the scripture, whenever someone sat in the ashes, very often it was associated with what? Repentance. After Jonah... He preached to the people of Nineveh. It says that the king rose from his throne. He commanded everyone, including himself, to cover themselves with sackcloth, to sit in the ashes, and then to turn away from evil. It was Job who said that he repents in sackcloth and ashes. And then Jesus would rebuke those who refused to believe in him. And he said that if his works were done in Gentile land, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so in keeping with the absence of the name of God in the book of Esther, it is no surprise that there is this subtle reference to the people's heart of repentance before the Lord. They are fully aware that God is present in their darkness, in their distress, and they turn away from any inclination of evil in their life. We know that this is not a consequence of any specific sin, that they committed, but perhaps this was a heightened opportunity to examine themselves and to say like David, to see if there was any wicked or evil or grievous way in me. It was a call for examination. Maybe there was conversion taking place. Maybe there was um, just longing to turn away from the Lord. There seemed to be something going on that called them to a place of heartfelt, honest, and desperate Repentance before the Lord. And doesn't God do that to us? 
when we are hit with an unexpected shift in circumstance, this becomes a wake-up call mechanism that God uses to bring about transformation. And the people of God, they were making the most of it right here. I was speaking to someone recently outside the church who was experiencing a lot of trauma in their life, and, and no doubt this was an attack on the family. But he said that this was an opportunity to get right with the Lord in areas that were just hidden from him. He didn't see this in his life before until this happened. And I think just in the middle of those daily interruptions that we experience on the regular, take advantage of it and ask God to reveal hidden sins so that you can grow in greater likeness. It's, it's an alert sign that something may be causing you to turn to the Lord. And then maybe God is calling you to fast, to remove any type of distraction, to have this exclusive, unhindered time before the Lord and to appeal to him. Sometimes we talk about not wasting a trial. The people of God in Esther 4 are not letting this trial go to waste. They are ever conscious of the presence of God in their life and in the midst of the chaos and confusion, they turn to the Lord in prayer and penitence. We need to live consciously knowing that God is there, but secondly, when feeling the attack of the enemy, we need to live courageously believing that God is able. And as this next section begins, we notice that Esther appears back on the scene. We didn't hear anything of her in chapter 3, and she's nowhere to be found in the first three verses of chapter 4. She actually doesn't have a clue what's happening in the world, within the empire, or even among the Jewish people. The beginning of verse 4 says that when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about the condition of her people, the queen was deeply distressed. She doesn't know what's happening because she's been completely isolated. One commentator put it this way. He says, she's been removed from the mainstream of life in Susa. She's not out at the stores. She's not out at the marketplace. She's not there to hear the buzz on the street. She's not attending worship with the people of God. She doesn't have the pulse of the people. She's secluded. And the text doesn't tell us whether or not this is her choice. And I think to give her the benefit of the doubt, she probably doesn't know any better. She's, she's in a vulnerable place, a very lonely place. But we have to conclude that this is also a very dangerous place. Because going all the way back to Genesis, it was always God's desire that he dwell among his people. And once you begin to remove yourself from the people of God, you ultimately isolate yourself from the God of your people. And sadly, we've, we've really had a taste of that in the last couple of years, haven't we? And we've come to understand that there can, there's nothing that can replace the physical gathering of God's people because otherwise you're removing yourself from God's presence and it'll naturally breed a subtle decline in one's spiritual health. And this is what we see happening to Esther and it's reflective in her response. And yes, she's distressed, but the only solution she comes up with is Give the man some clothes. Give the man some clothes. 
Middle of verse 4, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. She, she calls up her local tailor and, and, and customizes a suit especially for him and sends it along the way t- with her younger women. We, we don't exactly know her intention and she might be completely ignorant or maybe she's concerned for his safety. But even still, it's a sad condition when you're unable to recognize visible signs of grief among your people and then to properly and practically attend to them. The entire city of Susa is in complete confusion. Mordecai, along with all the Jewish people, are lamenting and mourning and fasting and sitting in the ashes. And when she hears about this, she doesn't know how to sympathize with them. And you have to feel for her. And it would appear that she's maybe never really been taught how and doesn't know how to grieve with her people. But you can imagine Mordecai's response as he receives the clothes and he's like, well, what am I going to do with these? I'm just going to tear these up just like I did the other ones. Send these back. So Esther is now learning that something more has to be done. So in verse 5, it says, then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. She sees the need to find out what's the cause of his grief, which is probably what she should have done to begin with. But I think we also have to be sensitive just to the, the difficulty of this exchange that's happening here. It's not like you know she can just call up Mordecai on the phone or send him a text message they would have had to rely on third parties in relaying messages back and forth concerning matters of life and death. This wasn't easy. And we pick it up in verse 6, and we'll read down to verse 11. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. I think it's the last two words of verse 8 that give context to what Mordecai is telling Esther to do. She needs to plead with the king on behalf of her people. Her people. If you can remember back in chapter 2, it was Mordecai who specifically commanded Esther to conceal her identity. And ironically now, he's the one who's telling Esther that you need to reveal your identity. And if Hathak The messenger didn't know before. He certainly knows now. Word is out on the street. Esther belongs to the Jewish people. And I think we need to understand this as having a twofold meaning. One, that that Esther needs to be reminded that these are her people. 
You do not belong to the people of the empire. You belong to the people of God. I'm reminding you of who you are and who you belong to. But secondly, you need to rise up. You need to take charge and even be willing to suffer for them because these are your people. If they're going to be saved, Esther, you must be willing to suffer. You need to start revealing your identity. And I think this is a powerful reminder to us right now. That the attacks from the enemy are going to force us to take a stand. And to identify with a group of people, which has always been the case among men and women of the faith. When Joshua tells the people that there are false gods among them. And they will have to choose whom they will serve. They can no longer hide their identity. You have to pick one. So if we're going to be living courageously, we need to firstly start revealing our identity. We've certainly had conversations with our kids about, you know, being quote-unquote tactful with our neighbors and not wanting to offend, you know, and, and being really sensitive concerning issues among our faith, and I think all too often I've crossed the line of refusing to identify with who I actually am. If our communities will come to know about our love and allegiance to God, perhaps just even asking our neighbors questions would reveal your own identity in order to have them understand that they need a new identity. Especially with people who are going through distress. It seems like their hearts are just so tuned and most softened to hear words of hope. And so Mordecai is saying to Esther, God's people are in danger and on the verge of destruction. And so you need to come clean about your identity. And not only that, but we need a mediator. We, not, we, we, we need someone to not only identify with our people, we need someone to intercede on our behalf and deliver us from this death sentence. And I trust this type of language is not being lost on us here. The book of Esther is showing us that the Jewish people are right now in need of a mediator to plead on their behalf, but it's also pointing us to the fact that you and I are in need of someone to plead on our behalf. God says that the soul that sins will what? Will die. That's a sentence, death. And the only way that we can be delivered is if someone were to mediate between us and God. And just like the people in Esther 4, you can't plead your own case. You need someone who will do that on your behalf. And the only one that can do that was God in the flesh, the man Christ Jesus who, get this, identified with his people, he was willing to suffer for them, and he became the perfect mediator between us and God. God is showing us right here in this text that the plan for salvation was always the pathway of suffering. It's a foretaste of the work of redemption that was still to come. In the days leading up to the cross, Jesus was with a crowd of people and he said that he was troubled. And then he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. And he says to them, if I'm going to save you, I'm going to need to suffer for you. 
And Mordecai is saying, Esther, you need to be willing to suffer if you want to save your people. You need to go to the king and risk your life. And she knows that. Because she says in verse 11 that unless the king holds out the golden scepter, I'm done. And not to mention, what makes you think he'll accept me in his presence when he's wanted nothing to do with me in the past 30 days? In other words, the only thing that impressed the king was my beauty. And right now, that's not working well for me. I don't stand a chance in front of him. There's obviously this undertone of of hopelessness and, and despair. She could only see her circumstance through the lens of her human ability and her beauty And right now, she wasn't secure in either of those. But you know what is so comforting about this right now? Is that we've all been there. When we all see the massive opposition in front of us and we're unable to see that God is able and he's able to deliver. Maybe, like Esther, we look around at our political climate and and we think, what can possibly happen that is good come from what we're seeing around us. As if God has never done anything good through a corrupt government. Or maybe it's that child that you think will never come to the Lord and and you've almost given up hope. Or maybe it's that marriage and you say, it's never gonna be what I've wanted it to be. Let me say that very often you're in a good place when you know that you don't have what it takes to deliver yourself. But God does not want us to stay there. He wants to draw our focus away from what's around us and what's inside us and toward himself to the God who is able. Esther is in a position right now where, humanly speaking, the odds are stacked against her and she knows it. She knows it. So Hathak returns to Mordecai in verse 12. And he relays this message to Esther in verse 13. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews. Your your life is in danger either way. You go to the king and he might kill you. You don't go to the king and you're still dead. You won't be able to hide your identity for very much longer. But if you keep silent, he says in verse 14, And all of a sudden, Mordecai breaks out into what can be argued as the most definitive line in the entire book of Esther. And he says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. If you keep silent, Esther, God is going to save his people like he promised. And when did he promise that? When did he promise that? In, in this one incredible statement, in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai points Esther all the way back to the covenant promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. When he said that he would bless his descendants and then there would be a seed that would come from the woman who would give relief and deliverance to the people of God. This is not the end of the, peop- of the people of God. This can't be the end of the people of God. God promised that he would deliver, and this promise has yet to be fulfilled. And you know what Galatians 3 says about what was happening to Abraham in that very moment? It'll be up on the screen here. Galatians 3 verse 8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
Here it is. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In that very moment, back in in Genesis 12, Abraham was hearing the gospel being preached. And you know what that means? That when Mordecai was reaching back to the covenant promise, he was pointing Esther forward to the cross of Christ. He was preaching the gospel to Esther. Esther, just like in Genesis 12, was hearing the gospel being preached. And he says, Esther, you and your family may die, but God's promise will stand and he will provide ultimate relief and deliverance for his people. And I hope that you're now able to read verse 8 in light of what we understand here in verse 14. I hope you can see that the reason why Mordecai has so much courage and boldness and confidence to tell Esther to go to the king, even if it costs you your life, is because he's fueled by the fact that God is sovereign over his people and he's not done with them because he said so. He's going to save his people. And he holds the sovereignty of God with great conviction and then he can command Esther to be courageous. It's like what Spurgeon said, the best and the wisest thing in the world is to work as if it all depended upon you and then trust in God knowing that it all depends upon him. So the question to Esther is, do you want to be a part of it? God doesn't need you to fulfill his plan. He's going to fulfill it. But maybe, do you want to be a link in that chain? And as he rounds up his final message, he closes with the most famous words in the book of Esther. And he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe God has raised you up for this. Maybe he has brought you here in this position for this moment, for this deliverance. Maybe. Why? Because nothing happens by chance. Don't think for a moment, Esther, that your eyes in power is simply coincidental. It too is an act of God's providence. And just like this story, our our lives are are all bound up in God's particular and precise providence. You're not here by chance. You're not here by chance. You're not at this service just by accident. The very people in your home are are, are not there just because, but it's part of God's purposeful design. And that every conversation that you have within your four walls or, or outside of them are intentional by God. And let me say that that there is not a single attack or temptation by the enemy that is outside the purview and care and love of God's providence. This is why we should be infused with courage because the God who controls all of that is the one who promised to deliver and he doesn't fail on that promise. Do you believe that? Because if we did, then we too will start leading with bold conviction will refuse to compromise what we believe and and how we act, both around believers and non-believers. We stop tolerating the ugliness of sin in our life and devote ourselves boldly to holiness. And then, like Mordecai, speak those same hard truths to those who need to hear it. We're filled with courage because we believe in God's faithful promise to deliver 
Mordecai right now is taking charge of this circumstance because of his courageous faith in God to keep his promises. But we need to ask the question, what kind of impression do these words have on young, poor Esther? And I know that we've seen a lot of dark moments in the story, but this is perhaps one of the brightest and key moments in the entire book of Esther because there is a dramatic shift in the life of Esther. Because when the promise of the great deliverance is being preached to her, she too is infused with courage and faith that she saw in Mordecai, and she now believes that the God who promised to save his people in Genesis is also able to to save his people right now. She might not know how that could happen, but he know, she knows that he can. And she responds and says in verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews, hold a fast on my behalf, don't eat or drink for three days, and I too will fast and then I'll go to the king. She has no idea what she's going to look like in the presence of the king after fasting for three days without any food or drink and probably no sleep, but she doesn't care. Why? Because she's not betting on herself anymore or the circumstances around her. She would rather fall to her face and get this plead on the basis of the mercy of God. That's where the hope of deliverance lies, in God's mercy. When we start yielding ourselves to God's mercy, even though people see it as weakness, it's actually a sign of faith and courage because it's putting our trust in the God who we might not see but we know that he is there and that he is able. That's where our strength is. So often we put our hope in ourselves or, or the circumstances, or, but it is in God and his promise to be who he said he, he is. You say, wait a second, Esther. It was only minutes ago that you believed you wouldn't even survive in the presence of the king. And she says, you're right, I was, but now if I perish, I perish. I'm willing to die for this. What a transformation. And we don't exactly know what kind of change is happening in the life of Esther, whether this is some kind of spiritual awakening or even as I wrestled with this, maybe her moment of conversion. I don't know. But either way, what is amazing about this change is that Mordecai now believes that this is a queen that he wants to take orders from. Because in verse 17, it says that Mordecai then went away, and for the first time in the book of Esther, he did everything as she ordered him to do. That wasn't happening before. And never again do we read of Mordecai commanding her. Why? Because when met face to face with the gospel, no one should be leaving the same way they came. No one should be leaving the same way they came. So this is begging us to ask the question, how are you and I going to respond to the gospel? When we are met face to face with the gospel in the midst of the attacks of the enemy, are we going to run from God or like Esther, run to him? And if you are sitting here and you still don't know who the God that we speak of, you need to know that he is the one who hears your prayers and the cries of a penitent heart. And he will answer when you recognize your desperate state, your hopelessness. 
and your inability to deliver yourself in the presence of the king. Because unlike King Ahasuerus, our king is pleading with us to come as he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. He's pleaded on our behalf through his death and his resurrection, and so we're accepted on the basis of his righteousness and not our own. It's a glorious gospel that, like Esther, it demands a response. So that we now as a church... With great faith and courage and confidence, we also call upon him, knowing that he's always there, always there, and he's ever able. 